0: There are a couple people that get stars today. <laughs> Sam and Gloria, I've never seen you this close. Glad I showered. All right. Um, so, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Great to have you here. We're in our series, Unto Us A Child Is Born, about the birth of Jesus Christ. And anytime you start talking about the Christmas holiday, um, certain things accompany that kind of feeling. One, there's lots of songs about joy. There's songs about the birth of Christ, there's songs about angels singing, and there's this excitement about songs. There's also that excitement about presents and gifts, and we kind of get that from the wise men who gave gifts to Jesus, and we've adopted that into our culture, and we love that idea of getting gifts. And we have these memories, these warm memories of family and friends and traditions, and that warms our hearts to remember those types of celebrations and those traditions. But Christmas is not all about joy and happiness for everyone. Sometimes Christmas brings about a lot of pain. Sometimes the thought of Christmas can bring sorrow. Sometimes it can take people to a pretty dark place of depression because of what they are missing. Because of what they no longer have. Because it's just a memory, and so and so is not here to celebrate that memory with you. Or that song reminds you deeply of a troubling time. Or it reminds you of family, and you're at odds with your family. Or someone in your family is at odds with you. And so you dread that time where you have to get together and celebrate Christmas because you know it's just a show. So Christmas can have a lot of different emotions attached to it. And we don't often think of Christmas in negative terms, negative emotions, difficult emotions. But this morning we're going to look at that in just a little bit. We're going to look at the dark place that people can be in from time to time, not during just Christmas, but any kind of day. They can live in a very dark attitude, a very dark feeling, a very dark place, and they really seek, they really want to find a way out of that sorrow, that depression. And they turn to many different things. They can turn to food. They can turn to entertainment. They can turn to some very negative things. They can turn to drugs and alcohol. They can turn to bad relationships. Just to get out of that pressure, out of that dark space of negative thinking, negative emotions, and negative memories. They can turn to lots of different things, different people and different stuff. In Scripture, the Deliverer is described as Messiah. And we're talking big picture and small picture. The big picture of delivering us from sin and the small picture of delivering us out of that funk that we can get into and we can be blind to the things of God around us. The Messiah is this person that God has appointed on our behalf. He's anointed him specifically to take on that task of rescuing us, specifically to take on that task of bringing us peace, specifically that task of refreshing and renewing us, of opening our eyes and enlightening us to how every day can be lived before the holy glory of God without fear of what's next. In our lives. And God has appointed that person in our lives to rescue us from the big picture of darkness to the small picture of our everyday struggles with depression, anger, sin in general. We've seen so far in our series two very important texts one in Isaiah chapter 7, and the whole context around that was. The southern kingdom of Judah was desperately in fear of the nations surrounding them. And the king that was leading them, Ahaz, was an evil king, murdering his own children as sacrifices. He was no hope, he was no comfort, he was no Messiah, no rescue to the people of Judah. And God said, I'm going to make you a promise a virgin is going to conceive and bear a child. Not much more detail there in chapter 7. But a promise. Now the people of God can look back and go, God fulfills his promise. And anytime time he makes a promise, it's going to be true and amen. And every time he makes a promise, it's going to be for our good and our benefit. Then in chapter 11, he took that imagery of a virgin birth and he gave detail to it. It wasn't just, as we saw last week, little sonograms, but the full picture. And he described him in these terms that are wonderful. Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and described his character and who he would be for his people in tremendously comforting words and titles and exclamation points about who God was and who this Messiah was going to be. In chapter 11, we see some details about his activity. And it's his activities in chapter 11 that frees us from those dark moments, frees us from the darkness of sin, frees us from all of those things that might hinder us from living each day with joy and love and peace in our hearts. I don't think that there has been a week that's gone by in my recent memory where some tragic event has not happened. Last week it was someone with a gun in New Jersey
1: killing five
0: people. Or maybe it was three people and the two of the uh, attackers were killed. A week before that, there was another attack. A week before that, another attack. And I know it's not a Christmas thing to talk about or think about, but do you ever wonder when that's going to happen here in Pueblo? I mean, but we can't live in fear of that. And Jesus explains to us today that he has come to rescue us from that fear, rescue us from that darkness, rescue us from that uncertainty that the world brings our way. So let's get right into it in chapter 11 of Isaiah. The very first verse sets us at stage. For who this person is now we're getting more and more details about the picture of who this virgin child was who this person is with all these amazing titles and names we now see some details emerging verse 1 of chapter 11 a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from his roots a branch will bear fruit the imagery is super simple and super clear that there will be an ancestor, a relative of Jesse. Now, Jesse is the father of who? David. And we have promise after promise after promise in Scripture. And Isaiah chapter 11 happens well after David has died. Well after David has died. But there's promise after promise that there's going to be someone in David's family of the tribe of Judah that's going to be a better David. That he's going to come and be a magnificent king that he's going to sit on the throne and David himself is going to be a servant to this king. And people were wondering, what does this mean? What does this look like? In chapter 11, there's clarity.
1: There's going to be someone who comes, an
0: offshoot, someone that you're not expecting, someone that might look already dead and gone. David hasn't had a descendant on the throne in hundreds of years at this point. So who's going to take up that family name and that relationship of king of kings and lord of lords. But we're told he's going to be a descendant. And that is why, as difficult as it is to read genealogies and pronounce names, as we saw from the book of Nehemiah, that is why it is so important that the first chapter of Matthew within the first uh, 18-21 verses give us a lineage of David to Joseph, Mary's husband, Jesus' father in that sense, uh, humanly speaking, not divinely speaking, so that he would be rightful to claim the throne that David has. So we have to promise this virgin, that's, this child that's being born of a virgin, who has all these amazing titles, is now also going to be that promised one of David's line, of Jesse's descendants. And we're told that he has a very unique character in those next few verses, starting in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he he will delight in the fear of the Lord. These are amazing things if they were said of any of us. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, meaning that God places his favor upon him. That he says, yes, I anoint him. Anointing, which is a very Old Testament thing, as well as a very um, Eastern cultural thing, was a sign of usually pouring oil over someone's head to symbolize that they are richly appointed to this position. So anointing had to do with appointment. That is sort of like a seal, sort of like um, a stamp of approval upon a person. And so this individual who comes from the line of David, the line of Jesse, is going to have the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Now for our trivia question of the day. When did this happen in the life of Christ? The Spirit descending upon him. Oh, I just gave it away. Didn't I? I I had to. I had to make it easy. Everyone's kind of involved. Everyone gets a first place trophy. Yay, yay, yay. It's at his Baptism. At his baptism, when the Spirit of God, in the form of a dove, not a dove, it says the form of a dove, descended upon him. And so that's, in that moment of that baptism by John the Baptist, Jesus then takes on ministry full borehead, ahead. And that's God's appointment, that's his anointing, that's his seal of approval, that this person walks in my name and, and accomplishes things in my name and for my purpose goes on to say, the spirit of wisdom and understanding will rest upon him. If there was anyone who, well, we're told that Solomon was the wisest person that ever lived, besides Jesus, of course, because he's fully God. And he had all wisdom and knowledge. And so he knows intimately and able to divide to the very marrow of a matter, the very heart of a matter, what's going on and how to address it. That was the character of Jesus. We're also told that he will have Counsel and might. There's nothing outside of his ability. There's nothing outside of his. uh, He can accomplish all that is assigned to him. All that is given to him as a task, he accomplishes. And he has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is always um, a strange thing to talk about. Because Oftentimes, especially in modern times, when we talk about fear of the Lord, um, we like to discount the fact that it's an emotion. And we like to say, well, it means a healthy respect. Fear means a healthy respect. Every time, I'm telling you, every time the word fear occurs in Hebrew and in Greek, it means one thing. Scared. It means scared. It doesn't mean a healthy respect. It means scared. And all you have to do is take an example of Isaiah chapter 6, which we did not see, but we've looked at Isaiah chapter 6 before. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is in the presence of the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And he sees him as he truly is. And how does Isaiah respond? Yes, all right, I'm here in front of God, yeah! Well, how does he respond? He is flat-faced in fear. Same exact word. Now, we have to temper that with an understanding and a reality that we're not to be scared of God because he's our father. He's, He's the closest relationship we have that runs into eternity. Far lasting than any earthly relationship we have. Our relationship with him as father is eternal. So there's a fatherly relationship, but there's also this understanding and sense of he's holy and I'm not. And without a mediator going in between, I'm doomed. I'm undone. Isaiah says his flesh is undone. It's like every molecule of his body is being torn apart in the presence of a holy God. It is serious. And we see that translated every time an angel reveals themselves as a heavenly messenger, those angels invoke a fear in the people that are listening to that message. Some fall down and worship, and the angels have to say, no, don't worship me, I'm a messenger, just like you. I'm a created being, we only worship God.
1: So there is a sense in
0: which we should take the relationship that we have with God extremely seriously. He's not Santa Claus that we can just sit on his lap and tell him what we want type of relationship. He's sitting on a throne. Uh, there's been a couple occasions, well, every occasion I've ever been in a courtroom has always been a pleasureful occasion. I've never been there on purpose, like in trouble. But I'll tell you, every time the judge walks in, there's always a little thing in the back of my mind that goes, Did I do something wrong? There's just that sense of his presence of respect and power that I stand up and sit down. I answer the questions that are being asked of me, and that's it. It's that type of real sense. He has power. Even more so with God. And this is a person who delights in that, delights in the fear of the Lord, loves that relationship, enjoys that tension of holiness in them. Now, as far as God is concerned with Jesus Christ, they're one and the same. Their their, their, their holiness is exactly the same. Their perfection is exactly the same. So there's no fear in the sense of being scared before God for Jesus. But he did have that moment on the cross where he realized, if I go through this, and I bear the sin, penalty, punishment of everyone, I am going to be, for a moment, separated in that relationship. So he understood what it's like to stand before God the Father as judge. And he delights in it. He loves that relationship. It goes on and talks in verse 4 and 5, That Jesus will reign with justice, righteousness, and will defend the helpless by defeating the wicked. He says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. All of this is describing the perfect character in which God, through Jesus Christ, views humanity. There is no fooling God. Can you fool the court system? Yeah, you can. You can fool the court system. You've seen cases that justice was not served. I don't want to bring up any particular cases because I don't want, you know. But if you had breakfast this morning and you had a glass that you drank from, you might have drank orange juice. And I think you can put that connection together. Our justice system is not perfect. Yes, it says that it's equally weighing the decision with blindness, But you and I can easily and readily admit that we do judge people on the way they look, don't we? We judge people on their accents. We judge people on the color of their skin. We judge people by their age. We judge people constantly. And while our justice system has rules and protections in place, it is not perfect. With Jesus, it is perfect. His justice and his view, his take on things, is absolutely, 100%, unsuaded by looks and feelings. He sees the true matter of the heart perfectly. Perfectly. Every single time. Every single intention, he knows. Every single action, he knows what's behind it. He doesn't have to guess. Oh, they only said this because they want something from me. No. He sees exactly every intention for what it's worth because he sees it righteously and perfectly. Wow! This is a God who is going to really defend those who can't defend themselves.
1: This is going to be a God who judges those who
0: take their power too far. This is one who's going to take revenge and justice upon those who abuse others. This is one who the poor... Will be considered, who the fatherless will be considered, who the widow will be considered. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Everything that ties him together is just going to be perfect understanding. A perfect understanding. He goes on in verse 6 through um, 9 and gives us more information about everyone, everything. Will enjoy the peace that Jesus brings. Listen to how this peace is described. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lay down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near a cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What amazing imagery God gives us about peace. Because that's what's happening here. I can't imagine that. I can read the words. I can put these things together, a wolf and a lamb lying down together, and I remember all those little funny videos on how dogs and cats can sleep together in the same bed, and they play together, and all of a sudden half an hour has been wasted watching YouTube with all those videos. But this isn't just a one moment in time catched by a camera. This is an Earth lifestyle. The wolf and lamb, leopard and goat, calf and lion, the little yearling, uh, the child leading them. Has anyone ever been to a zoo? Yeah, yeah. Uh, What's one zoo have in common with every other zoo? Not the type of animals they have, but the fact that the animals are what? Enclosed in something. Now, we've gotten much more humane and made the, the enclosures larger and without all these heavy um, uh, fences and, and things, but um, they're separated, aren't they? They're separated from one another and separated from us. Why? Because if you let a gorilla and a lion and an elephant all is run, run around, they're going to do damage. They're not at peace with one another. They're not friends, and let alone put a little child in a cage with him. And we look at that and go, can't happen, doesn't happen. Yeah, I see one example every now and again, but he's talking an earth like this. He's talking an earth where the cow feeds with the bear. I can't imagine those two ever getting along, let alone their young lying down together. Let alone a lion eating straw like an ox. I know very little about lions. Very, very little. But I know that they like meat. They're carnivores. They're not even omnivores. They don't eat both meat and vegetables. They're just strictly meat-eaters. And to live in harmony with an ox, which is really a big piece of meat to a lion, really a big piece of meat, slow. Big. A lion is thinking, I've, I've made it to heaven. eating hay." Wow, what caused such enemies to be at peace? Not only that,
1: but again, the imagery in verse
0: 8 of an infant playing near a cobra's den and a young child putting his hand into the viper's nest. There are... Well, there's probably lots of things that scare me if I really think about it, but there's nothing that really grosses me out or scares me as much as snakes. I, it, I held them. Ugh. And if you're one of those people that have a pet snake and you love it, awesome for you. But I do not need to watch your pet at all if you're on vacation, no. I, I, it's just, you. Let alone <laughs> A deadly snake. Did you remember Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter? He was an awesome character and, and a real peace advocate of nature and, and mankind. But the number of times I saw him, like, hold a deadly snake and look into the camera and go, And this snake, well, for, I'm not even going to try the accent, okay? But you can imagine, this snake is the most poisonous snake in all the land. Isn't it cool? Isn't it? In, Wow, why are you even touching that? Let alone let an infant reach in to the den of vipers. You'd say, crazy. And you're absolutely right. This side of these events, crazy. No one can create such peace between enemies. Who can create that much peace among enemies that have roamed this world? Who can possibly do that? Well, it's not Steve Irwin. He can't do it. It's not National Geographic. They can't do it. It's not every peace uh, program here on Earth. It's not education program that can do it. It's one person who can create this kind of peace with mortal enemies. That is the shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. It's only him. Only the descendant, the child born of a virgin, the child described in Isaiah chapter 9. That verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we're given a clue on how this happens. It's the knowledge of God that makes this happen. It's the reality that everyone who's listed here in verse 6 through verse 9 knows who God is. And God's rule and reign is full and complete. As much as there is water over the earth, so God's knowledge is over the earth. It permeates the earth. It covers the earth. So is God's peace to mortal enemies. He concludes... In verse 10 through 12, to give us a little understanding that even nations, warring nations, can see this kind of peace. Can feel this kind of established relationship. When Isaiah says,
1: In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner
0: for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from lower Egypt, from upper Egypt, from Cush, from Alam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel, and he will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. There's going to be a day, and it's not yet happened because we don't see this, but there will be a day when in final, absolute glory, Jesus stands as a beacon to all the nations, from the furthest in the east to the furthest in the west to the north to the south, every nation, and those are the words that he's describing. Everywhere you can imagine, my people will acknowledge me. And I will be for them a comfort. I will be for them a rod that declares truth. A resting place that's glorious will be his. And people will be drawn to that.
1: And that drawing
0: of people to him will bring about peace. It will bring about a finalization. When will that happen? I don't know the day. We'll recognize it when it happens because I think that's the day that all the revelation is talking about, all of those New Testament things are talking about when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. It's not yet happened, but it's going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a day where all those dark places are gone. Every dark moment you have will cease. There's a, a poet Uh, Henry Longsworth, or Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. As everybody, if you took English in high school, you remember the name. Wrote lots of poems. I don't know a single one of them, but I know the name. In around 1860, his second wife uh, died in a tragic fire at home. His first wife had died of an illness. His second wife died of a fire. And all of her children witnessed the fire. And Henry rushed in and tried to extinguish the flames, did the best he could, got horribly burned himself, but she perished. Two years later, 1860, so you know what's going on, right? The Civil War. Uh, He's living up in Massachusetts, and his oldest son decides to join the Union Army. And he joins as an officer. He comes from a very wealthy, educated family, so he joins as an officer. He's leading his troops into a battle in the South. I think it was in Georgia and he gets wounded really severely. A bullet went through, one side came out the other, and went through his spine uh, on the back side. And uh, Henry dropped everything and rushed to his son's side. And this battle, I think, took place uh, December 1st or 2nd. And so he gets down there about six or seven days later, and the doctors doctors tell Henry, "Um, there's nothing we really can do for your son. Uh, this war has taken its toll on him emotionally. He's kind of given up the will to live. And if he does make it through this, we don't think he's ever going to walk again. Uh, So just imagine, first of all, having a tragic injury and your doctors are from 1860. Wow. Right away, (laughs) you start to lose hope, right? Right? So Henry, in his diary, writes some things down, and he says that uh, this is one of the most tragic things ever to happen to him, and he he questions God. Now, uh, 1860s, uh, parenthesis statement, everyone is somewhat religious and Christian. Okay, That's just how we are in the 1860s. Uh, Whether that's true, genuine faith, it's really tough to tell because the culture is, Everyone goes to church, everyone sings songs, everyone memorizes scripture, everyone prays, everyone sort of is assumed to be a Christian. Henry starts to question that, and he writes in his diaries that he's struggling why God would leave him in such a dark place, and why does there have to be war? And he knows, he knows that slavery is wrong, but he's just, why does war have to take such a toll? And Christmas Day arrives that morning. And he's hearing gunfire in the distance and knows that he probably has very few days with his son left. And then he hears another distant sound. And that's where this song was written. As he wrote that poem, which we've turned into a song, you can really see his heart struggling with war, with loss, with life, and then he has that memory, that remembrance of that bell ringing, and that reminded him that God is here, that God has made promises, that God has rescued us from the dark places, and there's hope. In John chapter 14, verse 27, I'm going to leave this with you as our take home. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. That's his promise to you. In the midst of any dark place that you are in, any dark place friends or family are in, You can show them through Christmas and its message and its stories that we have a God who establishes peace in our hearts first. And he has promised in the future to establish peace everywhere with everything on this earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement of your promises. We sit on this side of history looking back at your promises and their history to us. They're facts. They came true. And we now eagerly await your second return, that you can make all things right, not just our hearts and our minds and our lives, but all of creation. Father, we look forward to that day when peace is established in righteousness and truth, and that where you reign and draw all nations unto you. For only then, Father, can we enter into eternity in heaven with absolute joy in our hearts for the promise you made way back in Isaiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.